tend to struggle with charity a little bit, especially when something unexpected happens. It'll hit me several days later, and you know I'll think, oh yeah, I was supposed to act with charity in that situation. But I keep forgetting to do that, and probably because I'm a terrible deacon. But, <clears throat> but you know, we want charity <clears throat> to be habitual and to come natural. So to avoid it as an afterthought, we need to have charity to be the ordering principle of our lives. And so perfectly ordered charity looks like Christ, and it's loving as Christ loves. So even though his hometown rejects him, Jesus still manages to respond with perfect charity. And it's not something that he has to stop and think and mull over. He just acts, and it's perfectly ordered to love, and of course to the other virtues. So in Nazareth, things seem to start off on a positive note. Jesus identifies himself as the one anointed by the Spirit. He's a prophetic Messiah who's come to bring glad tidings to the poor and the oppressed. And at first they seem impressed, they seem ready to welcome him, but Jesus knows what they're thinking. And since he's a hometown boy, Perhaps they'll get a little extra of God's blessings. After all, Jesus belongs to them first. And so their apparent acceptance of him is rooted in self-interest. And since charity rejoices with truth, Jesus doesn't simply bask in their approval. He tells them the truth or what they can expect from his mission as a prophetic Messiah. First, he prophesies that they'll reject him. Then he applies the prophetic examples of Elijah and Elisha to himself. In particular, the blessings that they brought to the outcasts of society and to the Gentiles. So Jesus' mission will be offered to and accepted by the outcasts and by the Gentiles. And at that point, the townspeople waste no time in fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. They reject him and his mission right then and there. They run him out of town and even prepare to hurl him off a hill. So we can assume that they didn't like being compared to those that reject prophets, even though that's exactly what they did. And even more, they didn't like the idea that God's blessings and salvation were being offered to all people, particularly the Gentiles. So Nazareth rejects Jesus because his mission goes beyond Nazareth and even beyond Israel. He's not supposed to do that because the Messiah belongs to them, to Israel. And I'm sure their reaction was also fueled by ethnic and religious prejudices as well. But it still sounded like, still sounds like a bit of an overreaction to us. But Jesus doesn't overreact in his response. He still acts with charity. He patiently suffers this rejection because love is patient. And despite their selfish, selfishness and threats, he doesn't rain down fiery death on them because love is not quick-tempered. And there's a place for righteous anger, but this wasn't it. And Jesus simply passes through their midst and goes away because love does not root over injury. 
So if perfectly ordered charity looks like Christ, imperfectly ordered charity looks like this guy. So I'm going to hold myself up as the via negativa. So while we were in Jerusalem, deacons David, Alexander, and I, along with Father Kurt, spent one night in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. We were the only ones in there besides uh, a few other people. And at one point, Deacon David tells us to kind of steer clear of this one certain person and to just let her have her space. Because apparently, David was in the Chapel of Adam, which is a kind of a semi-closed, enclosed chapel near the main entrance. And this woman came in, and in broken English, she, she told David to leave so that she could pray. There was plenty of room in this chapel. They could be at opposite ends and never bother one another. So it was a particularly odd demand. And when David first told us this, I thought, well, maybe this is a cultural thing or some sense of modesty. Um, you know, we would want to respect that. And then I noted how charitable my response was. I didn't assume false motives or get upset, you know, because love is patient, love is not rude. In this case, charity wasn't an afterthought, and I thought, well, I'm a good deacon. <laughs> but uh, David tried to engage this woman in a little bit of, you know, ecumenical dialogue, because she obviously wasn't Catholic, and that becomes clear in just a moment. He, he insisted that they could both stay and pray in the chapel. He on his end, she on her end. But that was still unacceptable. And so she repeated it. I go, you, you go, I stay. And then she muttered something about Latin, as in Latin Catholic. And there are some things that transcend cultural and language barriers. And it was pretty clear that uh, the way she said Latin was not, <laughs> it was a little disparaging. And so it was pretty clear that this wasn't just a cultural thing. It was just plain prejudice. She didn't want to share any chapel space or blessings with Deacon David or with any Catholic. So when Deacon David told us that, I would like to say that I remembered St. Paul, especially the part about love is patient and love is not quick-tempered. But instead, I just look at David, Deacon David, I said, where's she at? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't fly halfway around the world and get locked up in this creepy church in the Middle East for this. So... That's how you go from good deacon to bad deacon in about 30 seconds. And if you just notice how irrational self-love is. So I was in the same space where Christ patiently bore untold suffering and injustice. But my pride gets tweaked a little bit, even indirectly, and I'm ready to start a fight with an old Greek woman, which probably wouldn't have been a good idea for me. But luckily, Deacon David did seem to remember Christ's example. He just passed through her midst, and left her alone in the chapel. So he was willing to forego his right to pray in the chapel because that better served love and discipleship. So we avoided an international and ecumenical crisis. <laughs> but simply, just love as Christ loves. And hopefully, you know, her experience with this particular band of Catholics will hope to undo any bitterness that she may be carrying. But overall, I think it ended up being a good learning experience which is important for our growth in charity. And we all have failures to learn from. And if for some reason you can't <clears throat> think of a time when you were uncharitable, just ask the guy next to you, and I'm sure he can give you a list of things, because we all do it. <clears throat> so 
these learning experiences help to inform our minds. <clears throat> Need some water. So that we can better train our wills. And the commandment to love, like all commandments, is directed at our wills, not our emotions. But no matter how saintly we become, we still need God's grace to help us love as Christ loves. God's grace poured into our, heart, into our hearts acts like a fire. It purifies our human loves. And it takes them up into God's love and transforms them into his love. And so finally, as Joseph Pieper pointed out once, it's not simply some innocuous piety that prays, kindle in us the fire of your love. When we pray that, we're praying for God's divine love to purify and to perfectly order our charity. We're praying for an interior transformation so that our human hearts can love with a divine love. You have been listening to the Notre Dame Seminary Podcast. Notre Dame is a Roman Catholic seminary and graduate school of theology located in New Orleans, Louisiana. For more information, log on to www.nds.edu.